For September 15th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 324, Skeptical as a Schoolgirl. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and I am joined by Peter Fenzel. Hi, Pete. Hello, Matthew. How are you? Riding that mute button there. And um, <laughs> sorry, you're you're coming out guns blazing. I love it. I love it. I'm with you. We're I'm right coming out. I read. Uh, speaking of which, Pete, I just read this uh, New Yorker profile that everyone should read um, while the New Yorker is still free before they lock lock the site down behind a metered paywall, which I think means you're still going to be able to get. Um, to get articles, but only like five a month before they, they lock out and prompt you to pay, uh, unless you're a subscriber. Um, there's a profile uh, of Al Pacino in this week's Ooh. New Yorker by John Lahr, which is a really incredible uh, bit, of, bit of writing and a bit of, window, a bit of a window into Pacino's career. And I mean, because, uh, you know, his glory day was before I was born, I sort of picked up Pacino around like Dick Tracy. You know, because, like, A, that was when I was beginning to be aware of pop culture, and B, that was a, like, second renaissance of Al Pacino. But there was, like, a long time in there where he was doing, uh, he was kind of out of the spotlight or else was taking work that that maybe wasn't capitalizing on his powers, you know, as, as well as it might have. Anyway, really interesting story, Al Pacino. Speaking of coming out! Guns blazing. Speaking speaking of profiles, you recently met read on a magazine about people who are out of touch for a while or and or not uh, in the public eye. I read a really interesting profile in GQ this week on the North Pond Hermit, a man who lived in the woods of Maine for 27 years and was recently apprehended by police, who survived uh, through the winters living in a tent by stealing things from people's houses, committing something like 40 or 50 thefts a year from the different houses around this area of. Of, of relatively up there, but not quite remote Maine. And it is just a fascinating take on this guy's life. Just really interesting. Uh, and, and I really recommend that as well. I, I recommend reading them together. Uh, I, think, I think if you read them together, and in fact, you, if you intersperse the chapters, sort of in a George R.R. R. Martin point of view chapter, uh-huh. Game of Thrones kind of way, they tell a combined narrative, I think. <laughs> and we have we have our own hermit, Mark Lee, uh, out from the wilds of, of the Upper West Side. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? No, oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was playing with my prototype Apple Watch here. Um, I was totally tuned out what we're talking uh, about. What's going on? Well, Mark, Mark, you're on the Upper West Side, right? How do you survive so far away from civilization? <laughs> Gossip, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, I've got a, um, you know, I really, I, wish, I should be starting my survival bunker, you know? Um, I will like dig it underneath my 40 story apartment building that I live in. Yeah. Um, and- I hear Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins have a great survival bunker at their apartment building. <laughs> oh, I never get invited over to their apartment building to their survival <laughs> bunker. I got to work on that. Are they? Uh, I don't even know. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go all like celebrity. Oh, they're, they're, just, they're, they're prominent New York residents. On, That's all. Yeah, on Susan yeah. Sarandon and Tim Robbins. Oh, no, I didn't know if they were still a thing or what, what was up oh. with them. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, maybe they broke up or something. I don't know. I just remember that their apartment was a place that existed. You guys, on my Apple Watch, <laughs> I can, I can like browse a little map of the Upper West Side, okay? And I'm looking for all the survival bunkers on the Upper West Side. Um, but that feature isn't there yet because it's still in beta. Sorry. 
Working so on. on my Apple Watch, I can talk to my talking dog or my dog that's capable of understanding language while simultaneously working on my Mac computer book to uh, foil the plans of the adversaries who are attempting to murder my detective father. So I'm really excited about my, uh, my, my uh, Apple Watch. Is that just a total whiff? You guys have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. Do I have to extend like a robotic arm out of the top of my head? Oh, and get my car oh to my convert God. Like, a, a, like sedan oh. into a van uh, magically oh. with extending Pete, wheels. All, all I have to say is, I'll get you, Gadget. That's probably not the first time I've uh, wait, 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 Mark, you didn't finish it. When are you going to get him? Um, next time? Yes, next time! Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> and how will I know it's next time? By checking the time at my Apple Watch. Oh, there it is. Oh, boy. Uh, all right. So we are going to, uh, we're going to do all the things that you like, which is, uh, the question of the week and then the other thing. Um, but hey, uh, we have a little bit. We have a little bit of news. We're we're starting something new. We're starting a new initiative this week on overthinking it. That's exciting. I'm I'm excited. I'm legitimately excited. Don't let the the sort of laconic uh, my laconic tone of voice fool you. This is just an a- affectation inside. I'm I'm you know as giddy as a as a schoolgirl. Um, are schoolgirls giddy? Do you know a lot of schoolgirls, and are they giddy? Uh, I don't know, Pete. You have you have something like twenty or twenty five sisters. Well, maybe you're qualified to answer that question. Giddy, no. Skeptical, yes. Yes. <laughs> skeptical a, I would say skeptical as a schoolgirl is probably a phrase we should use. And, and perhaps perhaps our audience is as skeptical as a schoolgirl uh, because I am about to announce something new, and they're like, "What? Uh, what is it? What could it be?" Um, we are starting an uh, an email newsletter at Overthinking It. We deliver content through to you through. Uh, that's an awful way. That's just an awful uh, yeah. sort of terrible way. We don't deliver content. We do overthinking together. We have smarter fun together. That's what we're doing here, you know? And uh, we have smarter fun together uh, in a number of places. In the articles on overthinking it, in uh, uh, podcasts and videos on overthinking it, in the forums, um, in, you know, uh, various live shows that we've done and and events and and meetups throughout the world internationally, because we did one outside of the United States once. We've done an international series of meetups, Uh, but we're starting a new one uh, via email. You can get your overthinking via email in a weekly overthinking it email, which will be sent to you in your email by us via email uh, at your email address, uh, which you check with your email client um, in order to check your email. So, uh, yeah, we are starting an email. um, I I hesitate to call it a newsletter because I don't think we're going to break a lot of news, but an, an email overthinking it uh, delivery. Um, yeah, it's going to be more of like a letter roundup. It's basically going to be like, hey, here's a me- it's going to be additional writing. It's going to be for me, for the most part. Uh, additional writing about stuff that's happening now, topics that are interesting in the current context of pop culture, you know, some sort of brief discussion, maybe some, maybe a conversation starter, maybe a little bit of analysis. And it's going to be a roundup of either past overthinking it material that you might see or other stuff around the web that you might like to read that we feel like because this is for people who kind of want to get a little bit more overthinking. They want to be like kind of a little bit more involved in this kind of way of thinking about stuff. This is like, okay, this is stuff we think you might like. 
right? And it's also going to be a place where if we come up with other cool stuff, we know that people who subscribe to this, this newsletter thing are going to be people who are, like, on this vibe and want this stuff, right? So, like, special events, they might get announced on the, on the newsletter first, right? Uh, maybe any sort of new... I don't want to spoil any of the surprises we have planned because we have a couple surprises planned. Um, nothing that's going to, you know, make you embarrassed to open your email. It's all going to be fun, and it's all going to... We're going to try to do it in plain language. Uh, well, not plain language. Ornate language, but not in, like... <laughs> it's going to be overdone and pedantic, but only to the degree that you expect from us, not to the degree that you would expect from a corporate newsletter. Uh, and it's just going to be part of, you know, another way to, to talk, you know, if you want some more time and you want to deal. We just have noticed also that a lot of other sites are using email newsletters more now. They've kind of made a comeback. They kind of had, had gone on the wane for a while when everybody was using apps. But now people are using email more, and we want to be able to use it too if that's something that people would find. Because that's what we do. We just jump on that bandwagon. When we see something is popular, we want to get... Yeah, uh, we made a solid two and a half years, and then we roll it out. You know what that's- I mean? Yeah, yep. yeah, that's that's what we do. Uh, yep. In two two and a half years, watch out for our new hit single. It's all about that mid range. Yeah, that mid range, that mid range, yes. no bass or treble. Yes. Uh, so, which um, is all about playing. Uh, it's all it's all about playing uh, Bayloths and Magic the Gathering. Right. Never mind. Exactly. <laughs> I don't get that reference. That was another whiff. You're two for two, Pete. Tonight, it's going to be a banner episode. So, someone out there found that funny. Continue. <laughs> uh, so, there's going to be. Uh, you know how you get uh, you get these things into your email uh, your email box. Um, you uh, type your email address into a form on a website, and we're going to have as a link in the show notes for this episode uh, on the homepage of Overthinking It and in a, uh, in a special post uh, very soon to post on Overthinking It. We are going to have uh, a way that you can do this. So uh, sign up. If you are a completist like most of us um, are, you want to be on for the very first one. I'm not going to say exactly when it's coming, but it's very soon. So uh, get, on, get on the ball for the Overthinking It email list. Uh, all right. Question of the week. Uh, I know that we are not a technology podcast, guys, but I just can't help talking about the technology event of the week, of the month, of the year, in fact. Um, when, when Apple unveiled a whole new category of product on stage in San Francisco, they just inaugurated a whole new vertical. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the ostentatious... My was inaugurated right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was the ostentatious infinity scarf worn by whoever was playing whoever was demoing the video game uh on stage at the iphone 6 and iwatch unveiling and we're gonna we'll put links to scarf guy uh in the show notes um yeah and you can just look at pictures of this guy twitter lit up instantly about about this scarf guy and this was uh as far as i'm concerned the technology news of the week so panel uh with um, with this in mind, we're going to prognosticate a little bit. We're going to do some trend spotting. We're going to uh, uh, inaugurate some new trends here. Your question is, what ostentatious fashion accessory would you like to wear prominently on your person, wearing a completely normal uh, or norm core even um, outfit, <laughs> except for one 
ostentatious, prominent fashion accessory uh, that everyone would notice and remark upon. If you were to appear in front of a lot of people, what is the one remarkable thing that you would wear? First in the alphabet, if you're playing the Overthinking It podcast drinking game, and uh, if you're not, I don't want to be your friend, drink, it's Peter Fenzel. So I was actually talking about this last night at the closing after party, after after party of the Boston Comedy Arts Festival, of which I was a part this year, which was a lot of fun up here in Boston. I hosted some shows, the group that I direct performed. It was a grand time for everybody. But I was talking about an attempt that I made at one point a few years ago while doing improv comedy shows to create a distinct look, right? To wear an accessory that could be noted as my accessory so that everybody would know that this is, you know, that this is me, right? This is... This is it's that guy. That's the guy that I saw in the last show. You know, I want to see him again. And I'm thinking, okay, it's improv comedy. You can afford to be more ostentatious or sillier than you would be in your normal life. And the audience would go along with it because they sort of expect things to be ostentatious and silly in certain ways. And uh, I, I did wear this for like two shows, and I was just so brutally shamed for it by all of the other performers. They just, they like looked down their noses at me. They really, they told me flat out I should stop wearing it. They were, they got, they got, borderline upset with me, right? And I was actually talking last night with some of the people who advised me to do this, and they laughed at me, and they, and they confirmed that this is, in fact, uh, they were, in fact, correct, but also confirmed that a different performer at the theater had picked up on this trend, like, and continued and did it after I had been shamed out of doing it. Um, and so this, what I'm referring to, what I'm referring to in general is fingerless gloves. Uh, I wanted to wear fingerless gloves while doing comedy shows on stage. But the thing that made it novel for me is that the fingerless gloves I wanted to wear weren't like sort of knit fingerless gloves, kind of like, you know, sort of riding the railroad kind of uh, hobo gloves. I don't know the word hobo is a little insensitive, but like, you know, hobo gloves uh, and not like sort of like, you know, uh, gloves for using your smartphone where the fingers have been cut off. But I wanted to wear lifting gloves. I wanted to wear like big, heavy kind of leather palmed lifting gloves, maybe even with Velcro straps around the wrist for wrist stability as like a fashion accessory. And my Xbox Live character does such a thing, I believe, wears these fingerless gloves. Unless I took him off him the last time that he did it. Um, but yeah, but it was just something that I was wearing all the time, uh, both uh, not so much for bicycling, but for, for deadlifting and for doing other weightlifting stuff that kind of pulls the skin off of your palms. And uh, it was something I felt was distinct, and I felt like people would notice about me. But two roads diversion to yellow wood, and I took the one where you wear gloves that have fingers on them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and it has made all the difference. And so I suppose if I, were to, if I were to go back and I could do sort of a Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors kind of situation, where we cut back and forth between the two lives that I might have had. I'd be curious to see how things would be different and whether Saturday Night Live would be better or worse with fingerless glove Pete Fenzel on it because he would have been such a comedy star. So uh, that's what I'm going with is uh, so, fingerless gloves, specifically weightlifting gloves. Yeah. Pete, I got a question for you. When I, when I uh, did a Google search for lifting gloves, yes. um, the, 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 the first items that came up uh, were specifically mesh lifting gloves and i have to ask you Pete, did you go with the mesh lifting gloves god no i would never wear mesh lifting why gloves. not because then you would have totally looked like bennett from commando <laughs> then you know what probably, Am I I right? probably should go with mesh lifting gloves that's probably I mean, let off some steam pete come on <laughs> you know how i said i wouldn't wear mesh lifting gloves mark uh, y- yeah yeah you did. i lied i lied <laughs> <laughs> Mark Lee, next in the <laughs> alphabet. Uh, what what are you going to wear, Mark? All right, so um, I've long thought that ostentatious belt buckles are due for a comeback or a, a coming. I don't know if they've ever really been 
in or not in the tech corporate sector. Um, but, you know, it could be along the lines of, uh, you know, what I grew up with in the South, where you'd have a large metal belt buckle that just sort of is a belt buckle and has, um, be it uh, the logo of the Alabama Crimson Tide, a popular college football team, or the Confederacy, a popular former nationality, a rebel breakaway state uh, of the United States. Um, it could be something like that, um, except, you know, updated for the tech world soon have your um, your smartphone ecosystem of choice um as, as a belt buckle but i was thinking they're gonna you know kind of take it to the next level and really tie it into this whole um new technology moment that we're living in i'm of course thinking about a belt buckles wearable technology and i know these things exist already i just did an amazon search for led belt buckle and there's a variety of them to choose from so you can uh have a, a belt buckle which will display at least one two three four five six characters on it so this exists now right but uh, in this sort of next generation um uh, uh wearable technology that i'm envisioning um the belt led belt buckle will interface with your phone and will display information on a live basis such as um the number of twitter followers that you have um uh, your tinder username i'm told this is the thing that single people use to get dates uh, online with their smartphones um uh, or you could just have a display sort of a a, a, a piece of text that just constantly scrolls back and forth um of which i would probably program into it sick transit gloria mundi because um, I feel like that's an important thing for people to look at as they stare into your midsection. <laughs> so uh, that's what I would like. Uh, what, you're saying that your, your midsection was once fearsome and and uh, glorious, and now it's it's withered and and <laughs> a, a shadow of its former self. I mean, were that were that to be the case? No, I was thinking more about you know wearable technology. <laughs> how uh, this glory will so also fade from the world. Oh God! Now you're like peed on me with the Ozymandias thing last week. Which I've been thinking about all week, Pete. You put you put a uh, you put a, a bug in my head. I have been bugged. Well, what? Because this is the idea of what of of. Well, I was talking. I was talking about. Uh, well, no, the idea that like you know this this wearable technology too will pass. And I was talking about the durability of digital information. And you you pointed out that like uh, it is ironic. You said that uh, that you think the uh, the Breaking Bad episode Ozymandias will last in its digital form, whereas it and the the Shelley poem that it's based on is about uh, how these things are not in fact durable and and uh, the sands stretch um, the sands stretch all around you know mm. but I I my name is is uh, Ozzy Matt Diaz King of Kings uh, look on my website ye mighty and despair <laughs> um, here's mine. You know, uh, jeans have gotten so tight. I I work with a guy uh, day to day who uh, who comes in wearing these, and 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 not a not a like a, a pencil thin hipster, you know, um, sort of stereotypical, uh, you know, looking hipster, like a, a a guy who 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 is like way into fitness, uh, runs like takes two substantial runs every day, morning and night, lifts. Uh, does all kinds of like outdoor adventure sport kinds of things, and is a sort of yoked yoked individual, a uh, you know a well muscled fella um, who I work with as a front end developer, and um, he wears these tight 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 jeans, uh, and I I see these these tight jeans a lot. We all do, and I think it's time to kick this trend up. 
um, to the next level. So I would wear like a business suit. Like if I if I were to appear in a technology keynote, I would wear it just you know the sort of standard business casual. I, you know, no tie, a jacket optional. You know, but tucked into britches. Uh, and hose, britches and hose. Um, uh, you may think britches before hose, but it's important to put your hose on first and then pull your britches up uh, over your over your hose. Just because, like, if if we're gonna get that tight with the jeans, why not go full on ballet tights and just show everyone the exact shape of our legs, right? And then. Um, you know, uh, and then there could be like developments of this this trend as in in the direction of pantaloons or in the direction of you know uh, uh, other ways other ways that it could go um, and may may even involve uh, high heels for men bringing high heels back for men I should say because they were part of men's fashion you know uh, uh, up until relatively recently in in history uh, and they do they do make those calves look lovely in your britches and hose. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm gonna do. But it's, uh, but I guess it's like a, a society for creative anachronism thing. Will you guys join me? Will you will you wear britches and hose with me? Sure, Matt. Anything for you? Thanks. I'm doing a Google image search on on britches, and I'm having a bit of a tough time ah. um, uh, visualizing to myself what britches uh, uh, comport of. Like what 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 constitutes a britches? When is a pants? Uh, no longer a baggy, say, hammer pants or um, capri pants. And when does it become a britches, pair of britches? Well, cap- hammer pants and capri pants are a, uh, are a different thing. I'm going to put into the show notes um, the, uh, the go- a Google image search for britches and hoes. Uh, we- why is this so gender charged? I don't get it. What, what do you mean? What, britches and hoes? <laughs> uh, oh hose oh i'm spelling britches wrong breaches <laughs> that's yeah oh you God. have to spell it you have to spell it with two with two e's you know and this is the you know this is the uh anachronistic short pants of early modern early modern costume uh and enlightenment costume and uh i think they are handsome and- oh i call these nazi pants <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> the the nazis well yeah the nazi ones are are the german style with the really wide with the really wide kind of upper leg part right yeah uh <laughs> no i'm not gonna wear nazi pants <laughs> uh but i i don't want you to i i don't want you to wear nazi pants mark i would never ask you to wear uh, Nazi pants. What I want you to do is to dress like the fashionable gentleman. Um, I'll put this. Uh, I'll put this URL into the into the uh, and, and just click on fashionable gentleman uh, of this fashionable fellow wearing uh, wearing breeches and hose. Um, okay, so like an 18th century aristocrat or, or a 17th century aristocrat, back when privilege truly privilege truly reigned. Uh, I mean, before that... before uh, white male privilege was, was toppled by oh God knows what by the Hunger Games, I guess, um, and and we've all been free to live in our um, infantilized world without uh, bridges and hose. Oh, I see. I sense someone is trying to do a uh, someone is trying to do a a pivot here. Yeah. So this is the thing that we want to talk about. We're going to put a link in the show notes um, to an article from. The uh, the this week's Sunday Times by A.O. Scott, who is their lead film critic, uh, 
and he wrote a uh, he wrote an article that's in this week's uh, Times Magazine um, about. Uh, well, I don't know. What, what, what shall we say? I mean, what shall we say? It's about, well, the right? title of it is provocatively titled The Death of Adulthood in American Culture. But it is uh, about that and other things as it's, well. It laments a, uh, it laments a, uh, the decline from what? From Don Draper to Louis C.K. in well, American Culture? Well, let me try to put it or? this way. It, 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 it simultaneously applauds the uh, sort of continuing erosion of the patriarchy and male privilege, or at least a sense that an elevation of the um, awareness of the problems of of male privilege. So it's on one hand celebrating that whole aspect, but at the same time bemoaning the continued infantilization of American pop culture, which is evinced by... Um, adults watching superhero movies that are very popular and reading The Hunger Games, which is ostensibly books for children. Yeah, yeah he, he has like... No, yeah. Go ahead. yeah, well, it's it's one of these things, right? Like, he yokes together a lot of, of different phenomena that, that perhaps don't belong under the same heading, but yokes them together under under one heading in, in grand sort of crotchety old man fashion, which is like, and another thing that ticks me off uh you know um yeah. a.o scott by the way it, it just like has a a a reputation for this right i mean like you you can uh, it, both inside and outside of his in film criticism work right just as an example there was a big food festival in a new york city park once and like he just like took to twitter and complained the hell out of it and uh and i think he's very self-aware and he was self-aware at least saying get off my lawn which he also says in this article, but he was still saying, get off my lawn and meaning it. Yeah. Right. He's trying to have his cake and eat it too a little bit. Because what is there's one section where he says, and I, yeah, I really recommend reading it, but I think there's a bunch of stuff we could talk about that will still make sense, even if you haven't necessarily... Uh, haven't necessarily read it. Well, sure. I mean, a- and that's that's the thing. Sorry, Pete. I don't mean to stomp you. I just want to finish the point I was making before yeah. this this article. Right? Like, uh, it's it's a little obscure to me what the actual thesis is of this article. Right? What the actual argument is, uh, as opposed to being just kind of a ramble through disparate cultural phenomena that that may have something to do with with one another. But it seems to get people mad or to get people thinking or talking. Um, when when you show it to them, and in that way, uh, it's it's a bit like um, the William Derezowitz article about don't send your kids to an elite college, which uh, was an excerpt from a book, but was published in I think the New Republic. That um, you know that uh, three or four weeks ago, the internet was going crazy over, and like think piece after think piece, and think pieces on on the uh, on the think pieces were written. So it, it taps into. I mean, it really like without being you know rock solid argumentation, or without I, I think adding up to necessarily adding up too much. It taps into uh, something, and people end up arguing with their own straw man version of the article rather than uh, yeah, with yep. the article itself. So so we do encourage you to read it. Okay, rant over, yeah. Pete. Sorry, I didn't mean to stomp you. Okay, so so to give you something, if you haven't read the article, to actually 
identify with. Here's something that A.O. Scott says about that, that basically heads off at the past, probably the hundreds of comments on the article and any, a lot of the other conversation about the article that uh, might happen. This sort of surface level conversation, which is basically like, you're wrong and you're making this up and this is stupid, um, which, is, which is true. But, uh, but um, it says, to oppose the juvenile pleasures of empowered cultural consumers is to assume, wittingly or not, the role of scold, snob, or curmudgeon. Full disclosure, the shoe fits. I will admit to feeling a twinge of disapproval when I see one of my peers clutching a volume of Harry Potter or the Hunger Games. I'm not necessarily proud of this reaction. As a cultural critique, it belongs in the same category as the sneer I can't quite suppress when I see guys my age pushing 50, riding skateboards or wearing shorts and flip-flops, or the reflexive arching of my eyebrows when I notice that a woman at the office has a plastic butterfly barrettes in her hair. God, listen to me, or don't. My point is not so much to defend Sun's responses as to acknowledge how absurd, how impotent, how out of touch they will inevitably sound. Uh, and then he goes on to say about, like, in the, in the last 15 years, there's just I've, – I've seen so much of this juvenile vision of the world play out in movies, and, uh, and they are not just money-making. They are the artistic heart of movie-making. It's comic books, family-friendly animated features, tales of adolescent heroism, and comedies of arrested development. He sees these, these four things uh, as the, the artistic heart of, uh, of the movie business, uh, which is interesting because it's all juxtaposed against – Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Sopranos, which, by the way, he gets the basic plots of kind of wrong. Uh, but it's like he, you know, he says, like, when, when, when Don Draper inevitably dies at the end of Mad Men. And it's like, yo, dude, we don't know what happens at the end of Mad Men. Don't claim that you know what happens at the end of Mad Men. There's no spoilers here. Right. And then it's like, and when Tony Soprano dies at the end of The Sopranos. Right. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not sure you actually watched that episode or looked at the trending topics on Facebook or Twitter about three weeks ago when it was, you know, talked about again. Right. It's like, uh, so, yeah, so he's saying, like, well, the death of these adults and the problematization of these adults is juxtaposed against the real artistic heart of Hollywood, which is the part of the pop culture that I most identify with as a film critic, which is, you know, and this is what, comic book movies, family-friendly animated features, uh, animated adventures, tales of adolescent heroism, and comedies of rustic development. That's, that's what he loops together as kind of like these, the heart that is juvenile, that provides no... Uh, understanding or basis for adulthood, right? No way to be an adult is present in these cultures. It's the so only, I mean, and it's the only way you can kind of yoke together, I don't know, the Hunger Games and Pineapple Express, right? In the same, <laughs> uh, in the same sentence and have it, I mean, have it kind of make sense. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe... Uh, I mean, there are other ways you could do it having to do with the fact that they all have white people in them. But, um, but I mean, and also just action sequences and probably a lot of the same stuntmen. But yeah, I know what you I mean. It's, it is it is a way. It is a way to sort of try to contextualize everything that is happening. Uh, and he talks about Beyonce. And he talks about yeah, as you said, Louis C.K. He talks about Huckleberry Finn. Uh, Iggy Azalea gets a shout out in his article too. Yes, which is to his credit. I did not think that he knew who Iggy Azalea was, so that is good. I have a axe, full disclosure. I have a big axe to grind with AO Scott ever since his decidedly lukewarm and I believe grossly uh, misinformed or rather mis- miswritten art, uh, review of Ang Lee's Hulk movie in June 2000. <laughs> <laughs> so he's oh. he's been he's been on your poop list. 
Yeah, I just like I mean he, I look I'm looking back at that article now and it does say nice things like the Hulk arguably brings to comic book material an arsenal of directorial and screenwriting intelligence unequaled since Tim Burton and Sam Hand began the Batman franchise back in 1989. Now he of course says and it's all wasted and it's like no that movie's awesome except for the dog scene. <laughs> like which the dog scene is terrible, but I love that movie. But no, no, no. I mean uh I mean I once had a blog almost entirely devoted to discussing how much I loved the Hulk. Uh, the Ang Lee movie, The Hulk. So I don't want to get into that right now. But that's that is why I kind of don't like A.O. Scott personally. The, uh, but it's kind of a love hate. So, uh, um, so he uh, he's talking about Iggy Azalea in the context of female singers. This is a minor point, but in the context of of fingers, female singers, and he says uh, there will be there will continue to be hand wringing about the ways female singers are sexualized. Uh, and then there's a, a dash to introduce a parenthetical remark, and he says. Cue the pro and con think pieces about Nicki Minaj, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Iggy Azalea, Lady Gaga, Kesha, and of course Madonna, the mother of them all. Um, it is hard to argue with their assertions and power, uh, their assertions of power and independence. Uh, take note of the extent and diversity of that list, and feel free to add names to it. Um, I guess it's I guess it's a long list, but is it a is it a particularly diverse list? They're they're almost all white, right? They they almost well, all I mean, make, Nicki Minaj. No, but I almost all white. Right. Uh, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Iggy Azalea, Lady Gaga, Kesha, Madonna, right? Like uh, literally everyone else. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. They they play like rock influence pop or country influence pop or uh, uh, rap influence pop or you know R and B influence pop, right? Like that. I don't, I don't know. I think that that he's sort of overstating. I mean, I I think that there there's a couple of. I mean, I there, I think there's a couple of strawmen in this article. One one is Judd Apatow, but but that's not even the most interesting. Um, well, but he does say he is making the claim the dominant voices in pop music now, with the possible exception of rock, which is dad music anyway, belong to women. He doesn't even have to say that. Lord won best rock album at the Grammys. Yeah, right. Like, rock is dead. Uh, people like rock, <laughs> by which I mean like rock as kind of a uh, a popular cultural, uh, a market driving, you know, attention driving, headline grabbing uh, form of music is is more relegated to kind of niche status at this point, right? Like I think that's fair to say. Yeah, that's a, and it's a really interesting. I mean, it's a really interesting point to make. I don't know. You it's know, the amazing, it lasts, this jazz didn't last that long on the top of the charts. Right? Like jazz goes from what, like the twenties to like the fifties, and rock goes from like the fifties to like the twenty tens. So like rock had a good run. You know, like rock is okay. Um, yeah, jazz. I mean, jazz sort of had given way to the Brill Building even before you know rock per se. Right, even before like the Beatles. Um, right. I mean, even before mass production made uh, electric guitars, you know, uh, cheap and easy to acquire so that there was this sort of um, flowering of rock music. But uh, so I, I, I want to take note of something about this article that that has nothing to do with the argumentation, but it has to do with the um, uh, it has to do with the rhetoric of the article. And I, I'm not sure if Mr. O. Scott, uh, you know, intended this. But uh, but the author is dead and all that. So so this is how it gets presented to us. Um, below uh, on the web version, I actually have the the paper downstairs, like wrapped in its blue wrapper. Uh, but I've only seen this on the web. On the web version, um, there's a headline, the byline, and then a, a series of seven pictures labeled figures one through seven. Uh, and figure one, figure two, figure three, and so on are referenced in. Uh, 
parentheses in the article. And this, this struck me as like a rhetorical strategy to um, almost science up, right, the, uh, yeah. the, the article, right? And it's, it's one of those things that like that kind of continues – in the history of, of Western letters, like for time immemorial, right? Where there is this, there is this sense that like science, science is the real knowledge. And it seems like more and more, there's this anxiety about this in, uh, in the humanities, right? That, and you sort of, you make these kind of scientistic moves. Uh, you, you kind of ape some of the gestures maybe of science writing in order to claim for yourself a certain kind of system in order to make for yourself a claim of a certain kind of systematic or abstract thought or of general applicability or, you know, of something like that. Yeah. The other thing I think that A.O. Scott is trying to do here with these figures is that he, it's just kind of a short run way of saying, I'm a film critic. It is my professional job to watch uh, movies and to, I guess, some extent television as well. And therefore my knowledge and recall, of these different examples from culture and to a lesser extent history, um, it, it, my knowledge is so authoritative that I can cite these examples like figures as if they were, uh, you know, charts from uh, my titration experiments. But going, going a little more poetic, like the idea of like figure, I mean, if you take figure the way it's used in art, right, as, as being like a, a shape Right, like, and and you look at them as sort of different shapes of authority or different shapes of adulthood, right? Like, and they are, I mean, across uh, from left to right: Don Draper, Tony Soprano, Ben Franklin, uh, the cover of Huckleberry Finn, Louis C.K., Beyonce, and Sarah Jessica Par- Parker from Sex and the City. Um, like, these are different figures of adulthood, of authority, of of popularity, of relationship to sort of independence and. Uh, and responsibility, right? Yeah. Okay. We need to slow down a little bit. <laughs> we did, I think, I think I'm like a little bit lost. I'm a little bit lost in terms of like where we are relative to what the article is actually saying. Right. No, no, so, no Pete, we just argue, we just argue, uh, against our own prejudices, straw men about, you know, about <laughs> what, well, I mean, I'm, I'm more guilty of this than anybody else, but I feel like we get so excited about all of the different ideas about, we have about the article is we bounce from one to one, uh, very, very fast. Um, and so, okay. So you're saying that the figures, I think that the figures, are the, an attempt by an editor or graphic designer to create an image that pulls together all of the ideas in the article, and that's the graphic designer or the the image person or the editor who is then saying, okay, this is an article that makes certain claims to authority, and it takes all these different things and it smashes them together, and so you're going to use this to help navigate the article. Oh man, Pete, but, the author is dead. I mean, A.O. Scott... I, I know, I know, but even, even then, it's like, okay, so I, I, I didn't follow. So each of the pictures are of people who are authorities. Okay, great. I don't understand why that. Oh, no, I mean they're different. They're, I, each of the pictures is of someone who who is referenced in the article who has a certain uh, pivotal relationship to adulthood, right? Right. Um, right. That's. But but I'm just saying that in labeling them fi- figures one through so and so, as opposed to just you know uh, laying them out throughout the article uh, as is done in in magazines, um, and then by calling them out. In, with references in the text as like you know for reference see figure one figure two mm-hmm. figure three right there is a that is a uh, kind of a scientific move which is a rhetorical strategy that has to do with with cl- 
claiming authority for the article. Gotcha. Understand. I got it. I got it. Cool. So, Mark, you, do you have something you want to contribute? Yeah, I want to step back and use this sort of a, a starting point, a different starting point for discussion because we've already started this discussion. Um, one of the big ideas in this piece that uh, does have um, some, you know, more empirical or sort of more grounded truth to it than perhaps some of the other pieces of this. So uh, one of the things that A.O. Scott talks about is this idea of arrested development, right? That and maybe, and this is, uh, he's not the first person to talk about this, right? Baby boomers who revel in like this prolonged state of adolescence or childhood and sort of avoid um, uh, quote unquote adult responsibilities or what were perceived as adult responsibilities uh, in, in a, uh, a simpler time, I guess, before the 60s, for example, right? And, um, you know, he problematizes that, but he is speaking to a social phenomenon that certainly, social and economic phenomenon that certainly do exist, right? One thing we can easily point to is the steadily uh, increasing average age in which. Uh, people get married and have children in the United States in the industrialized world, right? Like, like, yes. I, don't, I don't think anybody argues about that. That's a real thing that's happening, right? And people are putting off adulthood to the extent that you define adulthood as things like getting married and having kids, which I think A.O. Scott does in this article. Yeah, so just, that's the, what, just this week, just this week, there was a study that came out that said that single Americans now comprise more than half of the U.S. population. Hmm. You know, and that's... Uh, that's a big deal. I mean, there's a lot of reasons yeah. why someone might be single, and they're not all really have to do with not getting married yet. But yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, so the, you know, that, that's one aspect of sort of the, the demographic changes and, and the cultural attitudes towards uh, traditional family structures and things like that. The other thing going on is uh, economic, right? As affluence overall has increased over the last, you know, say 100 years or so, right? That in some ways has enabled a certain kind of. You could call it, uh, you know, arrested development or a prolonged adolescence or something. Well, uh, uh, economic prosperity, on one hand, has allowed um, the very concept of adolescence itself to 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 come into existence. Which I'll I'll, uh, put a pin in that and allow Matt to rather to come back to that because I think that's something you talk a lot about on the TFT podcast. Um, But uh, in general, it allows it allows I guess adults to have the luxury to be able to read the Hunger Games in some ways, right? Um, I'm going to uh, pull up this quote from John Adams, which I think we've probably brought up on this podcast before, but seems apt in this case, which uh, uh, helps encapsulate these things on the economic side of this equation. And it goes like this. I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. And my sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy and these other things in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. I mean, you might as well say, you know, and then, you know, my children will study poetry, music, architecture, and porcelain so that their children can read the Hunger Games or something Mm. like that. Does that make sense? So this is the old ancient Greek idea that there needs to be – you need to have surplus time in order to engage in philosophy, which is used – which they use as a a justification for kind of a slavery system. Not kind of, but for a slavery – now, I'm not saying that now we're using it as justification for a slavery system. But in ancient Greece, this idea that, okay, to be philosophers, we can't be working all the time. We have to have free time, and we have to have free time to think and talk about philosophy. To have free time, we have to be able to accomplish the things that we have to accomplish to survive – you know, and have time left over. So it's a, you know, and, that, and that's, that's sort of like a, a very, an ancient Greek philosophical concept that like if everybody is working all the time, then you don't have thinkers. Um, and and mm. if you value this sort of stuff, then you want to create circumstances wherein there are people in your civilization who have extra time. 
um, to do yeah. stuff. I mean, another way to put it is that you know the advances in our uh, economy and diversification of our economy have have allowed. Uh, us to do this thing that we're doing overthinking it right like um you know we uh we we have jobs that we work and then we do this in our spare time and then we also like have an audience that justifies the time that we spend into it that we put into it right i think a. O. scott might um you know might might say that some of the things that we do are some form of uh arrested development or prolonged adolescence or something like that like you know we we uh, we chit chat with each other about superhero movies um is that I mean, a rest of development and like I mean, and is that a bad i'm sure what i'm saying is i'm trying to deproblematize a lot of the things that that ao scott is problematizing in 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 his in his piece and, and looking to us in some ways to to help deproblematize it i mean from my perspective pretty much the opposite of what all you said is true um, which I don't I know. Go I mean, on. So, Go so in on. the sense of like, we're talking about kind of rising affluence, right? We're talking about this whole article, as Matt said, it, and, and as we've reinforced, is really only talking about a very fairly small subset of people. Um, I mean, for one thing, it brings up Mad Men and The Sopranos and Louie, which are not shows that are watched by a lot of people, even though they are always on the blogs, right? I think he talks about Lena Dunham at one point. Her show is barely watched by anybody, but is always talked about. You know, Dallas gets three times as right. many viewers as that show right and it's it's, so it's like we because of the echo chamber because of the facebook stuff and they pick what we see and all that other stuff we don't really get a sense for the true popularity of some of these things so we're talking about a a subset of the population not the whole population the population that reads the new york times great awesome but that said when we're talking about affluence and we're talking about the 20th century and rising affluence in the 20th century particularly the second half of the 20th century for me what i see is not the the sort of the rise of an adolescent uh, class of people who don't have to take on the responsibilities of adulthood, thanks to like the the luxuries that are afforded them to the, by the economy. What I see are like very a, a huge opportunity to create independent family units, right? A huge opportunity to have your own house, to settle down, right? To, being what we refer to, what or what A.O. Scott here is referring to as an adult, is a modern luxury. It is not something that you would be capable of doing in a lot of times in our history for most people. Uh, for example, in our modern society, right? Like we don't necessarily do much in terms of caring for the elderly, right? Like we have we have people who do that. We have social security, right? Without social security, there's no adulthood in the sense that A.O. Scott is talking about because every father has a grandfather, right? And then there's a problematic relationship with the extended family. The, the, the idea of a paterfamilias or head of the household becomes problematized, right? Like the idea of having a sort of man in the prime of his life who's in charge of his house is something that's dependent upon someone taking care of old people. Right, um, I mean the idea of like a pater familias in like ancient Rome or in you know kind of medieval European culture, you know, is very very different, and it's not this sort of like dashing figure. I mean, yeah, there's Aeneas, right? Aeneas, but Aeneas is carrying his father and leading his son, right? In in that sort of tableau as he flees Troy, right? That which is uh, as as, cl- as clear of a crystallization of the expectation and demands of cultural adulthood or manhood rather as I've always encountered. But this idea that you should be in charge by yourself uh, and that you don't have sort of both generations, you don't have any extended family. You don't have, like, uh, cousins. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. That's another huge luxury of, of, like, white people in the 20th century, is that, like, we don't have to we don't have to live in the neighborhood that matches up with the people that we come from. Right? Like, you know, if, this, if we were having this conversation, you know, in, like, 19, 1920 or whatever, like, you know, I would probably be living with Irish people. You know, like, Mark would probably be living with, you know, Korean people, and Matt would probably be living, like, on a cloud in a sky base or something, or wherever his ancestors come from. <laughs> <laughs> but just the idea that, like, these nuclear families with these hero men, 
you know like like i feel like this the the big thing that's missing from this article uh and this is in turn as counterpoint to what you're saying mark and i do think what you're saying is valid i don't think these are mutually exclusive ideas i do think that the existence that these two ideas the adolescent the sort of like in order to drive dad's car dad needs to have a car Right, and so like the the idea of like driving dad's like sports car, which is like an act of adolescent rebellion, is dependent upon the existence of this adulthood that we say can't isn't existing. It isn't in the center of things, right? But if if you know, so the two things they come and go at the same time. Um, but the thing that's missing from this is westerns. Uh, I think westerns have a huge role in this culture. I think that the idea of manhood is really uh, really really connected. And I'm going to just I'm doing a search for cowboy. No. Western, no, right? So like, there's no, there's no mention here. There's there's a brief mention of like cop shows, but there's no mention of westerns. There's no mention of kind of like um, the adventure kind of movies that come after westerns, kind of adult adventure movies. There's no mention of the Expendables in this, right? Which is like another kind of sophisticated take on this kind of thing. But it it raises the question of like. Um, the man that is capable of doing all these things, the John Wayne figure, you know, like. Um, as, as you said, you know, what are the economic conditions that are necessary for the John Wayne figure to exist? Where does he come from, right? And if if and in this day and age, young people they can't get jobs. You know, like young unemployment among young people has been at depression, severe depression levels for like twenty years. Yeah, yeah. And by no means, when I was talking about overall rise and you know uh, prosperity, that I mean to paper over the the those oh, sorts sorry. of problems. No, no, I know, I know you weren't being yeah. insensitive. I think you're. I mean, there is a much higher standard of living now. It would be foolish just because of our own issues with unemployment. It would be foolish to ignore the huge rise in standard of living that's also taken place. Like the fact that we can be watching the inter- the movies on the internet is not a trivial thing or sure. the TVs or whatnot. Whatever you're doing that's legal and good uh, to watch your movies and TVs. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's, it's that like there have been economic changes, but I think that I just, I just think, I think that when he's saying that, um, that, that adulthood and adolescentness are in conflict with one another, that like one has priority over the other, I think that they're also sort of presuming, he's sort of presuming a pr- that adulthood is prior to adolescence. That like the rise in adolescence comes after a rise in adulthood, a rise in adolescent fantasy. Is John Wayne an adult or is he an adolescent fantasy? Right? Like that's, I mean, I'd ask the same question about, uh, I mean, Commando, we already talked about, <laughs> but, that's, but it's like, is that a man? You know, is a culture that's obsessed with Commando obsessed with men or obsessed with boys? You know, like, like it's a more difficult question, you know, and, and uh, then, then to say like, well, if somebody who's watching Justin Bieber, does he like boys? Probably, probably, probably. I mean, I don't know, Matt, I, I, I sort of stole focus from you in a kind of nasty way, and I apologize for that. Um, really, I, I didn't. That. I didn't. I didn't notice that. But but I'm okay, gonna I'm gonna like leverage that to my you know to my exa- to my advantage by you know making you feel really guilty about it in order to monopolize more time on the overthinking a podcast. Oh, please do. Um, that's I, yeah. No, I think that I think that that what you guys are getting at is right. I look at. I mean, look. Here's. I mean, here's uh, a statistic that I'm going to make up. No, I read something tantamount to this. This is true in the broad strokes, right? When my parents uh, when my parents graduated college, the largest employment uh, employer in America was General Motors, and they paid in inflation adjusted dollars. Um, I think like something like seventeen fifty or something like that, right? Like for for an average person starting off 
at at General Motors or like entry level salary. Well, yeah, I forget exactly. I forget exactly the scope conditions of the of the particular statistic I read. Right, like, uh, and then at the time that the article the article that I'm referencing that I don't recall, but that I remember this poignant detail from um, was written. uh, The largest employer in America was Walmart, and they paid something like eight bucks in in then current. Uh, than current dollars, right? Like, so the idea, um, the idea that like uh, uh, being able to get a house is a, is a relatively modern phenomenon. Like, it uh, it was a it was it was a modern phenomenon, and now it seems to be over. You know, and it's uh, and there's like a, there is a great sort of accumulation, a, a great sort of concentration of wealth in the places that wealth was already concentrated, and uh, it seems to be. I mean, right? Like. Um, it it seems to be lamenting uh it seems to be lamenting a t- uh, a um it seems to be lamenting a time uh, the loss of a time the article seems to be lamenting the loss of a time when when uh this this was possible right like but i've always thought like ever since this has been going on with our generation ever since we we were in college you know 10 or 15 years ago and the the uh, oh god think about that and the um uh, you know, the idea was, well, this new generation, that they, we, they weren't called millennials then. We were like the tail end of Generation X or whatever. I, I mean, there, there are always different marketing names for, for these things because uh, marketers want to address them. Um, w- uh, we were moving home in record numbers because we couldn't afford houses and we couldn't, we couldn't get jobs. And the, uh, you know, uh, all the think pieces were lamenting the, the lack of responsibility, right? And th- these were sort of overindulgent boomer parents. Uh, and that always enraged me, right? Um, because because the economic conditions, right? And in 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 a way that these like something like girls seems to be, seems to be, um, you know, a commodity that masks the means of production, right? Like really seems to create false consciousness to create uh, a sense of the world that is at odds with the underlying economic conditions that give rise to the possibility of a television show like Girls. When Ryan and I talked about Girls, when we talked about Girls on this podcast, uh, we got more hate mail from that podcast than than we've ever got before. In uh, people were enraged uh, that we had talked about uh, Lena Dunham's show Girls. Um, and the the uh, I mean right so many more than were enraged that we spent like what two whole episodes episodes on Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance <laughs> <laughs> and that I mean that that says something about the world but but um the the uh, you know uh, when Ryan and I talked about it w- the thing that we called out about girls um, was that girls takes place in a kind of petty bourgeois face you know that is it's it's these uh, extraordinarily uh, powerful kind of media elite children or young people or young young women right e- each of them with a uh you know a celebrity pedigree or a kind of high culture or you know new york culture uh uh pedigree right doing this thing about struggling with life with life in your 20s that has the you know that has the the friends problem of like you know you're, you're not going to get an apartment like that working at a coffee house um Right. And like, God, the most adult people I know just in my, you know, in my career in entertainment as an actor, right, being plankton on the entertainment food chain, um, I know a lot of people uh, 
I, I know a lot of people who work at Starbucks uh, to get the health insurance and are actors and, and very good uh, actors who I've worked with in theater and, and stuff like that. And like it's in, just in terms of, of sacrifice, of self-denial, of delayed gratification, right? Um, and of like, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, just just kind of enduring a lot of difficult circumstances, right? Like um, these people are, are heroes to me. These people I know who do this, who, you know, drag their asses out of bed at three in the morning to go uh, open a coffee place somewhere. And then, you know, and then uh, get off their shift and do a do a full day and like. Um, do a full day in the entertainment business with all its sort of demoralizing humiliations and then go back and do it again, uh, do it again the following day. I mean, I won the effing lottery having a set of skills like, uh, like computer programming, right? Like being a software developer. Oh my God. I can, you know, sit at home in my pajamas and, and, you know, make an exorbitant rate, like, like, uh, doing this and then take off when I want to, to go to auditions and go do work in theater. Like I'm, you know, starting a play this, uh, this week. Right. Like, but that, that like, I, I don't know my, my, my peers, my contemporaries who are, who are supposedly the arrested development people, right. They're, they're the people without the, the office jobs that, you know, that the two of you have, right. Or have had, or, or continue to have, um, like what well, us, us arrested development people, like uh, most, most of my contemporaries live, a an unenviable, I don't know, an unenviable lifestyle uh, with a lot of self-denial and a, and a lot of delayed gratification and a lot of things that I, I associate with adulthood. Um, and, and they would love to settle down, get married, have children, buy a house, have some kind of, you know, stable presence in a community, have some kind of permanent commitment uh, uh, to organize their lives around, but have put those kinds of things on hold because they're not sort of economically possible. Um, and so, I, I mean, I sort of get, I sort of, I sort of, I guess, get angry at, at articles like this because I think we're being called out. Um, it, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the same... It's the same thing I feel like uh, happens in a lot of discussions about uh, privilege, capital P privilege on the internet, various various kinds of privilege, um, and the checking of it, right? Like, or the the not checking of it. I, I've checked mine; it functions just fine. The um, right, the 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 problem in those discussions a lot of the time is that like a uh, a structural problem in this in the society gets. Um, piled onto the shoulders of an individual who is kind of scapegoated in the moment for, you know, rhetorically for uh, the larger structural problem in the society, even though it's a problem at the level of structure and not at the level of agency, right? And I feel something similar here, you know, the, my feelings about uh, adult, quote unquote adulthood uh, and, and, you know, I mean, I think we've given lie to that, um, We've given lie to that right by showing that the uh, by showing that the adolescent is a precondition of the adult, uh, you know, uh, which was Pete's point earlier. But like my problem with with a lot of this stuff is that it talks about uh, structural issues, structural um, phenomena in the society as though they are. Uh, as though they are necessarily individual choices, right? As though they are problems at the level of individual agency. And, and they're not. They're just, I mean, they're just not. And pegging it to a, pegging it to a bunch of popular entertainments um, 
only exacerbates the problem, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. So in other words, A.O. Scott is complaining about a couple of things. One, he's complaining about Hollywood churning out the Hunger Games uh, and other sort of uh, juvenile forms of entertainment, uh, juvenile stories. And he's also lamenting um, uh, adults for behaving like juveniles and consuming the stuff. And what you're, what you're saying, uh, Matt, is, is to some extent like, well, you know, he's going after the wrong thing in some ways, right? And if so, and um, well, I'll just stop there. Is that is that kind of what is that an accurate uh, description of what you're talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he's. I. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think he's he's sort of tilting at windmills a little bit, and and that like the, there is a problem in the vicinity of the kind of area he intends to be talking about. There is this sort of problematic area. I hate that word. There is a sort of um, uh, an area of intense interest in conflict. Um, where in in the uh, in the kind of general vicinity of the area that he intends to be talking about, but I, I think the interesting, the compelling things to be said about it are not these things. Yeah, I don't know. I think there are some things. So so this is all well and good, and I totally agree with you in that st- in that sense. But we could also try to sort of see if there's anything in here that we could get on board with, or at least if there's anything that we can contribute to the conversation that we can add to it that he might have missed. I mean, the first thing that, the first thing that comes to mind was, as I'm looking at this right now and thinking about everything you just said, is that you know, he tells the story of, he talks about Don Draper, Tony Soprano, Walter White. He talks about these dudes who are seeing their authority ebb in front of them and who are sort of confronting their potential deaths at the ends of their stories. Although, as I said, he doesn't quite get the ends of the stories necessarily right. He doesn't even know the ends of the stories. But there is something to be said for, like, characters often die at the ends of novels. So, like, you know, if, you know, if, uh, I mean, Matt, you, you know great Victorian novels. Name for me a couple of great Victorian novels where the hero dies at the end. Oh God! You're putting me on the spot. You're not really in my. You're not really in my area. In in. Oh, I'm sorry. I said it's not my area at all. You're not really exactly. in my area in Victorian novel. In Victorian. Well, like a, ta- Victorian a tale of two English. cities. You've there's a, yeah. About, there's right? yeah. There's one right where Sidney Carton. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, you know, goes to do a far far better thing than than he has ever done before. But even I mean, uh, in the 19th century, gen- generally, right? Like. Uh, uh, Tess of the Durbervilles, right? Doesn't Tess die at the end? Anna Karenina dies at the end. Everybody uh, dies in Les Miserables. Yeah, yeah. Jean Valjean dies at the end of Les Miserables. Like, like, and that's not Victorian, but that's like, you know, it's French, but it's roughly contemporaneous, right? Like, they, like I, I question his supposition that a character seeing the, the sort of decline of his own life and his death coming up at the end of a story is giving the message that the life of this character is irrelevant to the people who are reading the story. Uh, I think that it is merely like an ending or a death is part of these sorts of stories, and we shouldn't necessarily consider ourselves to be, to exist in the point of the story that we are currently reading. Right, so like in the story of Don Draper, there is not just like the part of near the end of Women, which we are not at yet, right, where like Don Draper might potentially see bad things happen to him, maybe, right, and certainly he's dealt with a lot of problems over the course of his story. Well, right, and like who knows? I mean, like there is such a thing. We can't deny the existence of metaphor, even the bad ones, right? Yeah. And the the uh, you know the death at the end of Mad Men is the death of a certain kind of national self self conception. Um, you know, it's the death of the fifties, right? Generally, right, like. Yeah. The kind of long, I've referred to it as kind of the long, slow decline into the Warriors, you know, where, where New York becomes not this like, you know, super.
super clean like City of the Future, it becomes you know uh, graffiti on the subway and you know punk swinging chains around. Yeah, but Mad Men is also the greatest glorification that the early 60s have had in popular culture, and particularly serious adulthood and professionalism of the early 60s have had in the pop culture in quite some time, as I remember. Like, you know, I'm looking back at, like, other, like, look at, at shows like, like Dynasty and Dallas and Falcon's Crest, right? Like, if you look back at sort of older serials about professional life of the sort of extravagant ne'er-do-wells, you know, the, there's not this, uh, this, this sense of responsibility in adulthood is there in Mad Men the whole time. It's also there in Breaking Bad the whole time. It's not always upheld. It's often frustrated. There are tragic aspects to it, but it's present, right? And so when he's saying that this thing is, that the death of adulthood, he's, J.L. Scott um, maybe is, or maybe our intention, our like initial response to reading it is saying, and also what he says is like, oh, it's not present. It's been surpassed and replaced by juvenile culture. And it's like, well, if it's portrayed as dying, it's still portrayed. It's still there. You know, it's like, where are the adults? Well, it's, it's freaking Don Draper. Usually he's the first guy you mentioned in the story. Right? Like, and it's like, he dies. You know what adults do? They die. You know, and we don't like to see stories about children dying because, you know, that's not what we want to have, how we hope the story ends. Right? It's like, yeah, speaking uh, of Dickens, right? Speaking yeah. of, of Victorians. Victorian it is, it's interesting for someone to say, I don't think our culture is taking seriously the challenges of adulthood. And then saying, and then indicting confrontation with death as a reason why it is not taking adulthood seriously, as like support for the idea that adulthood isn't being taken seriously, right? And it's like, well, because they were adults, but they're just going to die, right? And it's like, well, you know, I mean, and he says he talks about Louis C.K. as as a loser. He refers to Louis C.K. in the article as a loser, and he talks about his problems, right? As and it's like, well, how are you supposed to be an adult? Louis C.K. doesn't offer us any guidance, and it's like Louis C.K. is is talking about being an adult. Right, like, and it's like, do you think that is is the death of adulthood in American culture? Maybe it's not the death of adulthood. Maybe it's not even the problematization of adulthood. Maybe it is that, like, you know, trying to survive adulthood in American culture, and it's then that we have more of the adults in our pop culture who are faced with like, you know, what they probably were always like this. That's the other thing, and that's the other point that I wanted to make, and I want to make this well before we run out of time, which is that these articles always claim that something has changed, and when somebody claims that. Something has changed. Yeah, it's yeah. very important to go back and look at what it used to be like to see if it has actually changed, right? Or whether we are merely like reflecting our own personal anxieties about change, right? Whether it's like, well, Don Draper is confronting death, and I feel like I'm getting older, and I might be confronting death, and also my whole way of life might be changing and dying. And that means that it is always do- it is doing this now, that now is the end of the world, right? But it's like, I mean, I sent around when we first determined and I just picked this totally at random, but I sent around to the, uh, to the authors uh, when we first determined we were going to talk about this, um, this article, uh, just a list of the New York Times bestsellers from 1995, from the, from the early summer, right, from June 4th of 1995. I just picked it at random, uh, and I was like, well, clearly not truly random. I chose it, whatever. You know, mathematicians take it to the comments. But, uh, but it's like, well, what? well, let's see. What was the degree of adolescent fantasy? in 1995 literature. Like, if nowadays everyone's reading young adult novels, what were they reading before, right? Uh, I mean, Matt, do you want to go through it a little bit? No, 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 you hit it. You hit it because it was your idea and it's a great one. 
Okay, so the number one best-selling book in 1995, in June 4th, 1995, from the New York Times, was The Rainmaker by John Grisham, which is described as a young man barely out of law school, tries to expose a corporation's, uh, what, what is it, $116 multi-billion scam. Now, the, the numbers aren't part of the, uh, of okay. the article. It's just sort of fragments from the article. Okay, so multi, multi God, that makes sense, because $116 multi-billion is not a real number that <laughs> company could be involved with. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, okay, so it's a story about a hotshot young lawyer who's, like, taken on the system right like okay you know like is that adulthood or is that adolescent fantasy right like you tell me then it's what it's it's a mary higgins clark mystery novel right where it's like you know which is like okay you know a murder case uh you know haunting a prosecutor's career in private life okay fine like maybe he wants more mary higgins clark he wants more mystery stuff he wants more like uh sherlock holmesy kind of things oh we have a sherlock holmes that's right sherlock holmes is really big right now right there's like multiple different sherlock holmes television shows that are right now and they're both <laughs> critically acclaimed right and people like them um but anyway like okay mystery stuff great people still like mystery stuff maybe not necessarily buy as many mystery books but it's still out there in the culture this is where it gets weird <laughs> this is where stuff gets really strange you have the celestine prophecy by james redfield an ancient manuscript found in peru provides insights into achieving a fulfilling life uh and the apocalypse watch by robert ludlum which is in a uh, he wrote alternative history right and this is uh or, or is that not that's not him i'm thinking of somebody else but it's Isn't ludlum the born the born identity guy oh it's the born yeah identity. you're thinking of harry turtle dove i believe oh you're right harry turtle dove right okay so the celestine prophecy right and the apocalypse watch um right and it's like tracking nazis but the first one is like this weird mid-90s thing about uh about uh about like the the, the, the i don't know were you guys do your guys moms get into the celestine prophecy back in the day no, but the Wikipedia synopsis describes uh, Eastern traditions and New Age spirituality. So yes, that basically. So yeah, so like you could say, oh well, if we're trying to identify the trends A.O. Scott is talking about, they're alive and well in the mid '90s as people were looking to mysticism and New Age stuff. This is the age of of this is the age of Enya. Although it's a little bit post Enya's greatest work, this was like when Enya's influence finally lands on the culture, like a like a gigantic egg laid from like an erotic goose, right? <laughs> <laughs> and just cracks. And wait, 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 wait! You're, 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 you're conflating two different <laughs> outlandish pop singers, but 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 uh, I take your point. Oh wait, so who am I? Who am I equating? York. Bjork. Oh, because she had the goose on her head. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she had the so, goose yeah. dress and dropped an egg yeah. on the red carpet at the yeah. Oscars when she was singing. Oh, God, what what was the song? It was called I've Seen It All, right? And it was from Breaking, uh, Breaking the Waves, the Lars von Trier movie, I think, something like that. Yeah, but a bunch of these, if you look at this list, a bunch of these books are escapist books that are meant to be read by moms who don't want to think about their lives anymore as moms and want to avoid their responsibilities. There's The Celestine Prophecy. There's The Ladder of Years, which is about a 40-year-old woman who leaves her doctor husband and start, tries to start a new life in a strange town. There's The Bridges of Madison County, right, which is sort of about like, oh, I'm so lonely and old and I want to be young again, kind of, right? Like, uh, of course, I haven't read it. I haven't seen the movie. but So if you've seen it and read it, go for it. But it doesn't strike me as something that like is that that doesn't seem to me solidly on the side of adulthood with regards to kind of like how A.O. Scott defines adulthood in the scope of claims of parental authority, what he refers to as the imperatives of adulthood. A.O. Scott talks about in his article, a man on the run, you know, out of the sea and into the forest. He describes as the sort of American story of adulthood. Well, this, in 1995, the story is full of, of uh, the bestseller list is full of stories of women on the run, away into the forest, towards the frontier, in line with American literary tradition as it has always existed, 
according to Neil Scott, whatever. Okay. Oh, the places you go by Dr. Seuss is a bestseller, right? Uh, the book, but, uh, I mean, the book of virtues by Bill Bennett was the thing that, yeah. that struck me on the list. And yeah. he was one of the, you know, uh, William Bennett was one of the, uh, sort of figures in the, the culture war, right? The 1980s and, and nineties, like culture war and, and was on the sort of conservative side, which stri- I mean, that book struck me as being like adolescent fantasy in large. Right? <laughs> um, right. Because it, it's kind of like, again, it's this sort of, uh, it's this sort of uh, lamenting a, a lost time of, of you know, uh, simpler, more straightforward virtue. And, uh, you know, I don't know. And, and how we don't, right, how we don't have that anymore. Yeah. And also, okay, this, I mean, guys, like, guys, 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 wait, wait, wait. There's, there's, there is a very prominent young adult thriller on this list and it's called uh, the diary of a young girl it's by a uh, an Anne frank i've never heard of her <laughs> she like sort of uh the um the jk rowling of her day it's edited no by loss, otto no frank and no <laughs> too soon too soon <laughs> um yeah yeah, but right, yeah. and then there's also Dave Barry's Complete Guide to Guys, which probably makes a lot of the same points that A.O. Scott was making. Or well, no, I mean the Dave Men are from Mars, women are from Venus is on this list. Dave Barry's anyway. Complete Guide to Guys is like you know Dave Barry. I mean, strikes me as being like as a sort of humorous column about like you know living life, having a family, like uh, uh, being a oh, proto. Okay. You know, uh, he was he wrote a like a humorous syndicated humor column uh, about like family life in Florida or something like that in uh, in a lot of newspapers and it's. You know, he's probably like, a, it's probably like a proto, this is 40. You know what I mean? Right. Like, probably slightly less acerbic in tone. I mean, like, okay, so like, let me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go you one better, Pete. Let's go back a hundred years to Anton Chekhov and the Cherry Orchard, right? right. Like, uh, it, it depicts a, you know, a bygone aristocratic age that is, that is so compelling and so beautiful and so kind of lamented, um, but that had to fall uh, to progress, right? And like the, the sound of the axe, um, uh, the sound of the axe chopping down the cherry orchard, right? Like is the hero of, is the thing that wins, is like Fortinbras coming in and making the speech. It's like Fortinbras comes in and, and makes a speech, uh, except it's just a sound effect, you know, of, uh, of an axe chopping down the cherry tree, which is the sort of the old Russia, the old aristocratic Russia. And then let me go back... Um, uh, let me go back to a play I saw this weekend, actually, uh, in a friend of mine's production of it, uh, Much Ado About Nothing, right? Which may as well be Saving Silverman. Uh, yeah. It's right because it's about two bros and how they they how they are completely bros before the other thing, um, and they uh, you know disdain women and they have all these misogynistic jokes and it's all you know uh, oh my god the number of double entendres on stuffing right the number of <laughs> double entendres uh, I mean the the dick stuff is is I mean and and I mean Shakespeare was a you know great writer he could write some dick jokes um that uh you know that stuff and then they end up it you know it ends up in the in the double marriage uh at the end right and like uh and you know it's this sort of r-rated comedy it's this sort of apatovian bromance um ending in a kind of restoration of the the primacy of of you know the heterosexual couple of its day and uh like right these just just to kind of buttress the point that you make pete that that 
you know, we haven't changed. We, these, you know what I mean? Right. These things haven't, haven't changed. Right. Just, just to looking, be clear, just oh, to be clear like the, when, you, when you talk about those dual marriages, I know this has come up on the podcast before, but for those who aren't familiar with the idea, it's like that's not what the stories are about, right? The, the real point of the story is all this crazy stuff that happens, and then the marriages are sort of just like painting a thin veneer of, sure. of, of morality on top of it to it's make it It's not, I mean, yeah, right? this is not what I usually refer to as the don- donkey effing conundrum, um, which is like you don't go to Midsummer Night's Dream to see the happy ending. You go to see the woman f the donkey uh in the middle of the thing it's hilarious it's a donkey it has big ears on its head and she's totally all, all up in his donkey business and uh <laughs> and the right and this is not that this is more a social comedy sort of a comedy of manners and and uh um, you know, there's an evil character who creates who creates trouble, and there's a masked ball because, of course, there is, and uh, stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, you're going you're going for all the bromance jokes about uh, what shrewish harpies women are. You know what I mean? You're not going for the. And by the way, Beatrice gets in uh, a good number of of jabs of her own, right? Like she gives as good as she gets. It's not all one sided. Um, but yeah, you're going for that. You're not going to see them be happy at the end. You're going to hear them. Um, you know, to, to, to going to hear this sort of verbal sparring. But my point is, I mean, my point is really like it could be um, who made the much ado. Joss Whedon made the much ado about nothing, right? Like a sort of two week shoot passion project that he did at his house. But, you know, it could have been Judd Apatow, right? Because that's that is right up. That is right up his alley. And it's a, you know, classic of English literature. Um yeah, there, there really is sort of nothing new under the sun in yeah. this in this respect. Yeah. I mean, I looked all the way back. I'm looking at a list now of the American bestsellers from 1895. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it's uh, Ian McLaren's Beside the Bonnie Briar Bush, which uh, Ian McLaren wrote kind of idyllic stories of the Scottish countryside, right? So this is this is like clearly not people who want to take responsibility for their lives. As I wonder they if are. he's. I wonder how he would vote on the referendum. <laughs> That's true. Good point. Then there is Trilby, which is about uh, uh, a beautiful woman everyone is in love with who has an affair with a hypnotist. <laughs> it's where Svengali comes from. If you ever heard of the term Svengali, it's it's the Jewish rogue, masterful musician, and hypnotist from the uh, 1895 Georges Dumonier novel Trilby. Uh, the Adventures of Captain Horn. Uh, the Prisoner of Zenda is one of them, right? Which is about like the king is kidnapped and a, and an aristocrat on holiday becomes the king it's crazy and most of the the other ones are like there's romances it's just like it, there isn't anything i'm sure that these stories have you know mature themes and whatnot but it's like these stories don't strike me as that they would like they would particularly satisfy uh what a.o scott calls for in a focus on adulthood um but then i guess it's like they that raises the question of like if an adolescent fantasy is wearing an adult's face, well, okay, so way back at the beginning of, of the podcast, we talked about how Katy Perry, Nicki Minaj, blah, 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 all these people, uh, they're all, these people are all women. Uh, and this is the voice of women is in pop culture, is in pop music, is what A.L. Scott is saying. But, like, let's identify how many of these women songs have been written by, like, Max Martin, right? So it's like, you know, a lot of these songs, a lot of the songs that are hits are not only not being made, they're not only not only not being made by a bunch of different women, they're being made by a small number of people, a lot of whom are men, right, are writing these songs, yeah, producing and, these songs. And, and uh, you know, uh, all the more are like Northern European, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And then it's like, well, okay, 
how are we defining whether this particular perspective is, is present in the culture? Are we looking only at the faces of the people who are being portrayed? Right? Like, is Lethal Weapon an adult story because the people in it are adults? Right? And it's like, oh, I'm getting too old for this ish right? Like, it's like, well, I guess he's an adult character, right? Like, he's sort of a Louis C.K. <laughs> loser, as A.O. Scott would define, right? Murtaugh. But it's like, you know, uh, if you take a story that it has adult themes and you make children or young people like the focus of it, uh, you know, are you, is it adult? Is it a child? Right? Like what is it? What happens when you transpose? What happens when you fantasize about being someone other than you are? Um, I mean, before we really end on the podcast, I did want to ask one question to you guys. Um, I want you guys to name your favorite adult in pop culture. Um, like a real adult. Like, let's give some solid counterexamples to A.O. Scott because they're there, right? Like who's your favorite real stone cold adult in, uh, in pop culture? Well, this like, is – I mean this is – this gets to the problem, right? Like this whole thing is an exercise in question begging because the, the terms haven't been defined, right? Like and, and even like the Sopranos or Mad Men, these, these people who are sort of called out as adult, like the, the, a lot of those stories are about the conflicts – uh, between the imperatives of different narratives of adulthoods, right? Like, is 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 Tony a family man? Is he an outlaw cowboy? Is he a new sort of 1990s sensitive man in therapy? Instead, you know what I mean, and stuff like that. And these things are not uh, these things are are not necessarily completely compatible with one another. So when you say, what, what do you mean when you say adult? To give a, a solid counterexample of an adult in uh, in pop culture. Okay, I'll give you an example. Captain Picard is an adult. Sure. Okay, great. Captain Picard is an adult. Fantasy show. Fantasy show, but okay. Yeah, but well, that's the thing, right? Is that like if you – well, that's that's also uh, um, Zoe – oh, what's her name? Zoe Salzana talking about where where can women get good roles in Hollywood? And Zoe Salzana says in space. Right. Yeah. Like oftentimes what we're afraid to portray on the ground gets portrayed in the sky. So like, you know, there's there's a really strong theme of adulthood and responsibility that runs through Guardians of the Galaxy. But I don't think A.O. Scott would see it that way because he sees it as a comic book movie. Iron Man 3, right, is about post-traumatic stress and like divorce. Right. And like uh, but A.O. Scott wouldn't see it that way because it's a comic book movie. Right. But it's like, um, you know, uh, I, I and those are more extreme examples because you are kind of doing a bait and switch. But with somebody like Jean Luc Picard, again, Star Trek Next Generation ended a long time ago. But you know, there's a figure who is undeniably an adult, right? And it's, he doesn't have any of the anxieties that John Draper has about being an adult. His age is not coming to an end, and even if it did, he would face it with a plum and tucking in his shirt a little bit, right? He has the sense of responsibility. He's not running away. He's not going off. He's not fleeing from the sea, like. What this really is is the sort of Kirk Picard debate is happening, right? Where like A.O. Scott is like wants wants there to be more Picards and fewer Kirks, I guess. He doesn't see a Kirk as an adult, but he sees a Picard as an adult because sure. Kirk is sort of hothead. Well, I mean, would you would you if I if I were to say Liz Lemon, right? Like, is Liz Lemon yeah. an adult? Right. I would think. So. Yeah. I, I actually yeah. would call out Louis C.K. as being an adult, right? Because his yeah. whole. His whole thing is about how do I live? I mean, like, how do I live in this in this world? Uh, you know, beyond just the things I want, like you know, uh, with the obligation. You know, Louis C.K. saying like you know uh, to his daughter in the show, right? The only time you you look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. Like that is uh, that th- that is sort of 
great a great sort of adult move there, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and like not just the, because the doctor the doctor is an adult. Anyway, go okay. Not because just because what? Because it's generous. Because... Uh, well, yeah. No, no, not just because he's he's parenting a child at the time. Yeah. The uh, oh. the doctor, like Peter Capaldi, the doctor is an adult. The, yeah, the new Peter Capaldi doctor is pretty interestingly an adult, right? right? Much more so than the previous one, right? Yeah. Like that's an interesting. That's actually something that would be an interesting whole topic of conversation on its own to talk yeah. about the new Peter Capaldi doctor. Uh, um, I, I want to rewind back to Thirty Rock for a second, and it's important to remember that Liz Lemon is an adult in the context. Of of all the man children that she has to manage uh, in the TGS show, um, with the important exception, of course, of um, her uh, mentor Jack Donaghy, right? Right. Who, um, I- in a way, is an adult, right? And sort of this like old Don Draper uh, patriarchy model, right? But it all is also, of course, um, the, the object of ridicule in the show as well, because, yeah. well, because everything is object of ridicule yeah. in the show. I mean, is Jack Bauer an adult? I guess he, he doesn't really take care of his family as much as he used to because of them all getting shot or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they didn't all get shot. They were cougars. But <laughs> <laughs> I think we're hitting the end of the road, guys. <laughs> guys okay, all right. Let me let into this. Okay, here's my favorite adult yeah. in pop culture. Um, I'm, I'm borrowing the words of someone uh, very, you know, my, my, my greatest hero, who's also in a, very much an adult in pop culture, right? Um, and she said it would never hurt him, never shout at him or get drunk and hit him or say it couldn't spend time with him because it was too busy and it would die to protect him. Of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this thing, <laughs> this machine was the only one who measured up in an insane world. It was the sanest choice. <laughs> that's also from a long time ago but you know what it's so awesome that yeah, I can't my, 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 I'm, I'm going down into the lava my thumbs up is going down and it's well before this podcast goes down into the lava let's uh let's wrap it up there <laughs> oh it was gone in the lava a long time ago if you have something that you want to say about adults and popular culture uh you can sound off on the sh- in the the comments on the show notes for this episode give some examples of of adults in pop culture and let's talk about them let's see i mean let's see if we can actually operationalize a definition uh of you know of adulthood that kind of goes beyond the the vague and kind of question begging one that that AO Scott uh, proposes and also don't forget uh, look at the show notes also to uh, find a link to sign up for the new overthinking it newsletter email uh, email experience um, that will be uh, coming your way and if you are a, a completist uh, do it soon because you you do not know the day or the hour when uh, we will do the um, we will do the first newsletter I'm, I'm very excited that Pete is inaugurating it and will be uh, will be taking the reins on it um, uh, for its inception. Uh, and the... Uh, wah, wah. <laughs> uh, so uh, sign up for that. It's also going to be on the homepage of the site. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking. Until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.